0: Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriaku, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, I'll be diving into my favorite modern, non-classical-era screwball comedy, What's Up Doc?, directed by Peter Bogdanovich in 1972 and starring Barbara Streisand, Ryan O'Neill, Madeline Kahn, Kenneth Mars, and Austin Pendleton. Do you ever watch a film for the first time and think, wow, that was magical? Well, that's how I felt when I first saw What's Up, Doc several years ago. It is by far the best, quote-unquote, modern screwball comedy, and I use that word loosely because it's now 51 years old, and it's also one of the funniest, period. What's Up, Doc is essentially a meet-cute-gone-wild it tells the story of an uptight musicologist named Howard Bannister, who travels to San Francisco with his overbearing fiancée, Eunice, to obtain a research grant. There, he meets free-spirited Judy at his hotel drugstore, and she immediately takes a liking to him, much to his dismay. Howard's grant competitor is a flamboyant researcher named Hugh Simon, who tries to suck up to benefactor Frederick Larabee. Judy tries to help Howard secure the grant, but in the process, turns his life upside down. Throw in a case of four identical plaid overnight bags, and you've got yourself a screwball romp. Now, if that plot summary sounds vaguely familiar, you're not imagining things. What's Up Doc takes the best parts of Howard Hawks' classic, Bringing Up Baby, and updated them for a 1970s audience. Now I hesitate to call the film a remake, because it's not necessarily trying to accomplish the same thing as its inspiration. Bringing a Baby is irreverent, stainy, and cheeky, and What's Up Doc is all of those things and some. But this film is also an homage to Depression-era comedies more broadly, and as such, it's more sentimental and also audacious than the original. Peter McDonavich once said that screwball comedy was his favorite film genre, and you can tell when you watch What's Up Doc. Peter Bogdanovich told it, What's Up Doc came about because Barbara Streisand was eager to work with him. In an interview with Greg Kilday of the Hollywood Reporter, Bogdanovich remembered that she had seen the last picture show, and not long thereafter, he was called into Warner Brothers production head John Callie's office. Callie said, and I quote, Look, Barbara really wants to work with you. If you were gonna make a picture with Barbara Streisand, what kind of picture would you do? End quote. Peter Bogdanovich said, And I quote, oh, I don't know, kind of a screwball comedy, something like bringing a baby. Daffy Girl, Square Professor, everything works out all right. Callie said, do it. He also gave Bogdanovich the services of David Newman and Robert Benton, the screenwriting team behind the studio's recent hits Bonnie and Clyde, and There Was a Crooked Man. Of the meeting, Bogdanovich remembers, and I quote, it was the fastest I've ever had a movie come together. I was sitting in John's office, and before I left, I said, can I produce it? And he said, sure. So I left the office, producing and directing Barbara's Next Picture, even though nobody knew what it was except for the fact that I told John it would be a kind of screwball comedy. End quote. When Bogdanovich contacted Newman and Benton in May of 1971, he was told that they could only spare three weeks because they were due to work on Benton's Western, Bad Company. Bogdanovich allegedly told them, and I quote, If Ben Hacked and Howard Hawks can write Scarface in 11 days, I think we can do this one in three at the time he was living in an apartment in the sunset tower with his girlfriend amused sybil shepherd although he was still collaborating with his ex-wife the producer screenwriter and production designer polly platt bogdanovich recalls that the writing team came over and and i quote we knocked out a script just the three of us david newman came up with the title what's up doc as an homage to the fast-talking warner brothers icon bugs bunny himself a parody of the classic screwball hero peter who in It Happened One Night. Of course, not far from the writing table was Polly Platt, whose contributions to the film were innumerable, and I'll get back to her later. Bogdanovich presented the rough draft to Callie, and they both agreed that it needed sprucing up. So, Bogdanovich enlisted the help of his friend, the actor and screenwriter Buck Henry, for rewrites. And you may recognize Buck Henry's name for his work on The Graduate and Catch-22, among others. Henry was the brains behind the overnight bag subplot, in which four identical plaid bags carrying different items ranging from Howard's bone to top-secret government documents get mixed up. According to Henry, one day, Peter Bogdanovich called him up in the midst of one of his rewriting sessions to check on his progress. Henry was frustrated and declared, I've lost one of the suitcases, Peter. I don't know where the fuck it is. Of his experience working on the film, Henry recalled, and I quote, What's Up Doc is a farce, which generally means it's about nothing except itself. We wanted a G-rated comedy with no redeeming social values. It's wacky farce, like Hollywood used to do in the 30s. Very rare nowadays. As Henry completed the rewrites, Bogdanovich recalled that he had a moment of clarity. He recalls that he heard an Ethel Merman rendition of Cole Porter's You're the Top while on an airplane and knew immediately that it would be the perfect song for the film's title sequence. He told Greg Kilday, and I quote, I just thought it would be a good opening number and it would be fun to have Barbara sing it. Since we had Barbara Streisand, we should have her sting at the beginning and end of the movie," end quote. Streisand's version sets the tone of the film. It begins with a breathy sigh and builds to a silky smooth jazz number that is characteristic of her powerful and emotive vocal range. Her rendition blends perfectly with the title credit sequence, in which a woman's hand slowly turns the page of a scrapbook sitting on top of velvety cream-colored fabric. It's a beautiful throwback to the spirit of classical Hollywood.
1: Words poetic, I'm so pathetic that I always have found it best Instead of getting it off my chest To let them rest, unexpressed I hate parading my serenading As I probably miss a bar But if this ditty is not so pretty At least it'll tell you how great you are You're the top, you're the Colosseum You're the top, Mm -hmm. you're the Louvre Museum You're a melody from a symphony by Strauss
0: Bogdanovich remembers, I was there when she recorded it. She was very intimate with the mic. It's all about her and the mic. I was standing about 10 feet away, and I could hardly hear her. In the meantime, Bogdanovich and Polly Platt worked to secure Ryan O'Neill for the Dr. Howard Bannister role. O'Neill was a former boxer turned actor who gained popularity on the television programs like Empire and Peyton Place. Although his star persona was cemented with his portrayal of Oliver Barrett, in the romantic drama Love Story from 1970, Bogdanovich was allegedly hesitant to cast O'Neill, but at the urging of his agent Sue Mengers, he was convinced to watch Love Story. Bogdanovich and Platt were impressed by the actor's performance and handsome good looks, and invited him out for lunch to pitch the role. Bogdanovich told O'Neill, and I quote, If you do this, I'm gonna make fun of you. You're gonna have to shorten your hair and we'll put you in a seersucker suit and glasses. You're really gonna be square. O'Neal agreed. Callie and Bogdanovich set the budget at $4 million. O'Neill was paid $350,000, while Streisand earned a whopping $500,000. Bogdanovich earned a comparatively modest $150,000, but also took home a percentage of the profits as part of his existing Warner Brothers studio contract. Filming began on August 16, 1971 on the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank, with location shots completed in San Francisco with a team of stunt doubles for the extended chase sequence. Now, on the point of San Francisco, conventional historical narratives around What's Up Doc have tended to diminish the creative input of Polly Platt. Now, I hate to use the phrase wife of Peter Bogdanovich because Platt was so much more than just a spouse. She was a brilliant artist, mentor, and creative mind in her own right, as exemplified by Karina Longworth's in-depth study on the sixth season of You Must Remember This podcast which you should listen to for a much more in-depth study of Platt's accomplishments. History is not a static entity, and I think we must continue to revise the images of figures uh, that have fallen by the wayside. Since Platt's death in 2011, her story has been one that has received considerable revision, and with good reason. Not only was she Bogdanovich's most frequent and significant collaborator, and their working relationship lasted longer than their marriage, but she helps shape much of his early film career. Together, they worked on such films as Targets, The Last Picture Show, Paper Moon, and, of course, What's Up Doc. For her work on these and other films, Platt became the first woman admitted into the Art Directors Guild. She was responsible for What's Up Doc's sets, allegedly taking inspiration from Ernst Lubitsch's film, and she was also the one who chose the San Francisco setting. Allegedly, Bogdanovich wanted to set the story in Chicago, but Platt felt that the San Francisco's winding streets would enhance the frantic chase scene in the film's latter half. Her decision was a stroke of genius. The chase scene, which ends with the parties flinging themselves into the San Francisco Bay, is a screwball masterclass of comedic timing, and the hilly geography adds to the dizzying labyrinth feeling that the film evokes. I would play a sound clip for you now, but it simply wouldn't do the scene justice. You just have to take my word for it and watch the film yourself. Just before shooting began, Ryan O'Neal claims that he bumped into Cary Grant and asked him for some advice on how to play the role that Grant had originated in Bringing Up Baby. Here's O'Neill with the rest of the story.
2: I met Cary Grant many years ago in, in Cannes, and I was about to start What's Up Doc* And I said, Cary, is there anything you can tell me, any th- advice you can give me t- for this story? And he said, yes, I can, have a good tan. What? Yeah, just have a good tan, because that way you don't have to go to makeup and so you can sleep a little longer, you don't have to go in so early. Also, take fountain. I said, fountain the street? He said, yeah, it's quicker to the studio than sunset. So that was the advice that I got. When you learn, when you're acting, you watch the others. The old pros, you watch them, and it, it it leaks out, and you get to you get it by osmosis. That's
0: how I do. That osmosis is also evident in the way the actors play off each other, mirroring the frenetic energy that is a defining characteristic of the screwball genre. Their chemistry shows. Howard is a square, and as Bogdanovich told O'Neill, he was the straight man. The actor plays him with a naive exasperation that perfectly balances Streisand's overbearing character. O'Neill proved that he could be funny, but it's Streisand who gets the biggest laughs, and it helps that she was a natural comedian. Of his experience working with her, Bogdanovich said, and I quote, she's so good as a comedian that it was easy for her. That's why she didn't want to do comedy that much. It was too easy for her. She knows timing. She's just really good at it. Basically, I tried to get the best of how I saw Barbara, as funny and cute and charming and the kind of a wise-ass at the same time. What's Up Doc wrapped in November of 1971 and later premiered on March 10th, 1972 at Radio City Music Hall. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the film took in the single largest gross in the theater's history, at a whopping $65,000. Reviews were generally positive, with Roger Ebert calling it, and I quote, food at last for we who hunger for a scruple comedy utter lacking in redeeming social importance, end quote. He wrote that Bogdanovich is a, quote, master of screwball comedy. He isn't an imitator so much as an admirer with ideas of his own, end quote. In total, the film earned an impressive $66 million at the box office. In a 2017 interview with Turner Classic Movies, Bogdanovich reflected on What's Up Doc's enduring public appeal.
1: A lot of people come up to me and say that's our family's favorite picture and we always look at it with the whole family and I get that a lot all around the country and I think that's uh, good because that's what I had in mind because when we made the picture the uh, the studio said don't you want a PG or a PG-13, you had a G. I said, no, I want to do a G-rated picture with no socially redeeming value. And that's what we did.
0: The family entertainment with no redeeming social values is ultimately what makes What's Up Doc such a success. It's a smart comedy that pays homage to its comedy predecessors in a way that is modern and downright hilarious. Bogdanovich and Platt were students of film history, and that's no more evident in the film's referentiality of points big and small. I've talked about the battle of the sexist trope on previous episodes, but as a quick recap, because of the production code, classical Hollywood films could not explicitly portray romance or sex on the screen. Sexual tension and romance had to be kept to a minimum, or expressed in such a way that filmmakers did not violate the code in screwball comedy that manifests in combativeness. Verbal and physical sparring are coded allusions to sexual chemistry, a clever way to work around the code's strict moral mandate. And we see that in What's Up Doc's cinematic inspiration, Bringing Up Baby, and the antagonism of protagonists David Huxley and Susan Vance. The film establishes Susan's domineering personality from the first encounter on the golf course.
2: Hey, that's my ball. Just a minute. Hey, just a minute. I beg your pardon. Oh, dear. You shouldn't do that, you know. But What shouldn't I do? Talk while someone's shooting. Well, anyway, I forgive you because I got a good shot. But you don't understand. See, there it is, right next to the pin. (laughs) But that has nothing to do with it. Oh, (laughs) are you playing through? No, I've just driven off the first tee and (laughs) I... I see you're a stranger here. You should be over there. This is the 18th fairway and I'm right on the green. If I think this part, I'm gonna beat my record. I'll be with you in a minute! What kind of ball are you playing? P.G.A. But I'm playing a crow flight.
1: Mm, I like a PGA better.
2: No, I'm just trying to prove to you that you're playing my ball. You see, a PGA has two black dots and a crow flight has a circle. Mm, I think. I'm not
1: superstitious you... about things like
2: that. Oh, well, that doesn't Stop have anything to do for a minute, with will it. You please. Will you it... take out the pin? Oh my. oh, my. This is so silly. I never saw... There, <laughs> no, huh. no. no, you see, it's a circle. Well, no, Of course it is. Do you think it would roll if it was square? No, I have reference to a mark on the ball. Oh, that no, proves it's a crow flight. That's well, my ball. What does it matter? It's only a game anyway. Well, my dear young lady, you don't seem to realize you placed me in a m- very embarrassing position. Oh, really? I'm sorry. The most important corporation lawyer in New York is waiting for me over on the first fairway. Then it's silly of you to be fooling around on the 18th green. Yeah. You, you, you don't mind if I take this with me? No, not at all. Tell the caddy master to put it in my bag when you're finished. Huxley! Huxley! Come on! Oh, yes, I'll be with you in a minute, Mr. Peabody. Hey, mister, I think that's your car. Hey, hey! Oh. I'll be with you in a minute, Mr. Peabody. Hey! What do you think you're doing? I'm trying to unpark my car. Oh, hello. This you're... is my car. Oh, good then. Would you mind moving it out of the way? No, no. This is my car. Yes, I understand that. If you move it back about four feet, well, I'll be able to get out. Well, I'm afraid you made a mistake. Maybe this is your. What did you say? I said if you move it back about four feet, I'll be able to get out. I'm in a terrible hurry and I can't budge. Oh, you—you oh, you, you want me to move your would car? Would you mind for... terribly? Well, yes, I will. But but. Oh, uh... that'd be awfully kind, you. Well, up, take it very you'll... easy with that car. Yes, wouldn't... I'll go slowly. No, no. What are you doing? Well, I I have to get into position. Well, please be careful. I will. Now, you say where? Yes, all right. Am I clear? Yes, you're clear now. Clear? Yes. Oh, sir. Oh! Now, look what you've done. Oh, that's all right. I'm insured. But well, I don't care whether you're insured or not. Look, let me drive this car. Oh, it's all right. It's an old wreck anyway. But... It doesn't matter. Well, you don't understand. This is my car. You mean this is your car? Of course. Your car, fool, your car. Is there anything in the world that doesn't belong to you? Yes, thank heaven, you.
0: Susan is an unruly woman who abides by no reason or logic. She acts according to her own whims and desires, and practically swallows David whole to the point that he is emasculated. Susan is relentless and ignores David's protests to leave him alone. In a classical context, that antagonism is a representation of their bubbling sexual chemistry. Now, of course, when Bogdanovich and Platt were making What's Up Doc, they had no production code to contend with, and therefore, they had much more freedom over the film's visual style and storytelling. Unlike Susan, Judy is much more aggressive in her pursuit of Howard. She rips his suit jacket, a subtle nod to a similar moment in Bringing Up Baby. She impersonates his girlfriend, Eunice, at the research dinner party, and she even takes a bath in his hotel room.
1: Hello out there. Hello. It must be brain damage. What? I believe you dropped something. What do you think you're doing? I think I'm taking a bath, aren't I? If you're not out of here, in two minutes I'm calling the police. Who do you think they'll arrest, the girl in the tub or the guy with his pants down? I am not joking now. I do not like to act rashly. But you are the last straw that breaks my camel's back. You are the plague. You you bring havoc and chaos to everyone. But why to me? Why me? Why? Why? Because you look cute in your pajamas, Steve. Get out! Right now? Yes! No! Wait a minute! I don't know. I think I've broken several major bones. Let me see. Note, help me, please. No, just don't tell me where it hurts. the ileum, the sacrum, the coccyx? I hope it's not your coccyx. I can't seem to breathe. Is it possible to break her lung? I think your neck got too tight. There, see? Now the phone is ringing. I'll get it. I can do
0: it. Judy is intentional with her sensuality and uses it to her advantage. She seduces Frederick Larrabee to try to get Howard into his good books, much to Howard's chagrin, and it eventually pays off. Streisand plays Judy with her characteristic charm and vivacious personality. To Howard, she's a nuisance, but she's not careless in her intentions. And unlike Susan, who is at times enigmatic and aloof, Judy has a lot more interiority. She acts out of love. And even when she's a pest, she is still endearing because you know she's sincere. And that soft side that you don't necessarily get with Hepburn's performance was allegedly down to Polly Platt, who suggested to Bogdanovich that Judy should not be a downright pest. It was a brilliant decision because I think it adds depth to her character and to their relationship dynamic more broadly. It makes us understand why Judy is so irresistible. Bogdanovich rightly called Streisand a natural comedian, and it's a shame that she made so few comedies. Although we see that talent years later in a film like Meet the Fockers. Streisand weaves together Judy's high-strung energy with her feminine charm in such a way that makes her character totally captivating. That comes across most pointedly in the aforementioned scene where she crashes the banquet and cozies up to Larrabee.
1: This must be Miss Burns. How do you do? How do you do? Hi. You! You, you! Miss Eunice, Howard. Eunice. We've almost got that stammer cured. Sit down, dear. How? How? Howard. Howard. He still gets stuck on names. It's it's, it's probably the excitement of meeting you for the first time. I must say, I can feel it myself. Oh, can you? Can I? My heart is going a mile a minute. Why, you can just feel it pounding. Can't you feel it? Yes, I think I can. I, yes, it's absolutely. It's certainly in there, pounding. It's, it's amazing. You should feel it, gentlemen. Sit down, gentlemen, please. Can I sit next to you, Miss I Barnes? wouldn't have it any other way. And why don't you sit here on my right, Bannister? No, if you could please move, Mr. Simon. But, sir, this is not, this is definitely Bannister. This is not the seating arrangement, according to the place cards, but I think we can break a few of the minor social customs. Sir, I must point out to you... I must point out that foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Emerson. I beg your pardon, my Ralph waldo emerson born 1803 died 1882 you like emerson i adore him i adore anyone who adores emerson and i adore anyone who adores anyone who adores emerson your turn (laughs) she's a delight banister a delight and you're a lucky dog but this is admit it you you admit you're a lucky dog i'm a lucky dog but sir burns may i call you you no what howard means is that back where we come from (laughs) everyone calls me bernsey 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 i like that (laughs) bernsey help
0: Judy's naturalness becomes magnified in the contrast with Howard's fiancée, Eunice, played by the scene-stealing Madeline Kahn. On the outside, Eunice is a prim and proper lady with big hair and vintage dresses. She's a real throwback to the 1950s, and she stands out against the rest of the characters. And because it's Madeline Kahn, she amps it up by enunciating every single word and projecting a shakiness in her voice, almost like a schoolmarm. When Eunice first meets Judy, she chastises her about her behavior, saying,
1: Howard! See? Howard! I said five minutes. I'm sorry, Eunice. Eunice? That's a person named Eunice. Where have you been? I had a little problem in the drugstore. Steve, you didn't tell me you were married. we not married. Congratulations. But well, we will be soon. says,
2: Who is this person?
1: I haven't the vaguest idea. She was behind a rock in the drugstore. Oh, come on, Steve. You can tell her. Why us is she us? calling you that name? Don't hey. pay any attention to her, Eunice. Look, Miss Max. You know her name. Eunice, I swear this is a
2: bizarre joke. Sure! Just... It's
1: easy for you everywhere you go. Another heartbroken. Women, women, women. You call it joking. Eunice and I, we call it lust. Don't you know the meaning of propriety? Propriety? No. Conformity to established standards of behavior or manner suitability. Rightness or justice. See etiquette.
0: Eunice is clearly coded as someone who is undersexed, and she yearns to be the sexually fulfilled woman she thinks she can be and that's brought into committee clarity when she is shown reading a book called The Way to Become a Sensuous Woman, which was a real-life how-to guide published in 1969. Although Eunice reads this book in the privacy of her darkened hotel room, a signal of her sexual repression, she also displays her lustful feelings towards Howard and Frederick in very overt ways. Eunice embodies the tension between screwballs chase pass and the comparatively liberated sensibility of 1970s comedies. As a classical Hollywood devotee, I appreciate Bogdanovich and Platt's cinephilia and the way the film refers to cinema of the past. I mentioned the Bugs Bunny title and the tearing of Howard's jacket. And of course, there's a scene where Howard and Judy sit at a piano and sing as time goes by from Casablanca. But my favorite is a reference to Ryan O'Neal's famous line, love means never having to say you're sorry from his film Love Story with Ali McGraw. First, the original line as it appears in Love Story.
2: Jenny, I'm sorry.
0: Don't. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Now, what's up, Doc?
1: Did you happen to know that I uh, love you? Yeah. You did? Do? Listen, kiddo, you can't fight a tidal wave. About those things I said, I mean the way I acted back there, I'm sorry. Let me tell you something. Love means never having to say you're sorry.
2: That's the dumbest thing I ever heard.
0: Admittedly, I'm not a big fan of Easter egg culture because I think they can be gimmicky. In many cases, filmmakers rely on them too much to distract audiences and as a crutch for a weak story. But What's Up Doc uses them sparingly and to great comedic effect. Here, the line pokes fun at O'Neill's star persona and of melodrama soapy excess. What's Up Doc is aware of its history and calls attention to its status as a self-reflexive and referential film. It plays with cinematic conventions in other ways too. Characters are aware of themselves as characters and and they even break the fourth wall now some late classical era screwball comedies were also self-reflexive and i'm thinking of the scene in i was a male war bride where anne sheridan and carrie grant discuss why their characters bicker so much she says it's a result of and i quote sex antagonism self-reflexivity works when it matches the film's tone and i think the knowingness in i was a male war bride doesn't necessarily land for me at least because the film is a bit too maudlin at least the first half is. What's Up Doc is far more irreverent and can therefore afford moments of self-deprecation. The film celebrates comedic excess through its blending of different comedy modes. This is a world of slapstick pratfalls and physicality, where cars speed down the hills of San Francisco and plunge into the bay, where overworked judges pop pills on their bench, and where Keystone Cop-esque firefighters haphazardly break down hotel room doors. Bogdanovich created a daffy world that operates according to threadbare logic. Chaos reigns in What's Up Doc, and yet somehow, the nonsense makes perfect sense. Bogdanovich was a student of film history, as I mentioned earlier. Early in his career, he conducted several long-form interviews with some Hollywood masters, including John Ford and Howard Hawks, picking their brains on their approaches to cinema. Here he is explaining his approach in an interview with Charlie Rose.
2: Did you always say... In the end, I'm learning because I want to do it. Exactly. That was the that was at least 50% of the reason I did the interviews. I mean, there was always some other reason. Uh, but usually that was dominated in my mind anyway. I wanted to find out what these people were like. I wanted to find out how they did it. It was really like storing nuts for the winter, you know, when I get to direct. And in some cases, I already was directing by the time I asked the questions. In fact, the first interview I ever did, which is the last interview in the book with Sidney Lumet, I had already directed in the theater, so um, I knew, you know, working with actors, I'd studied acting, so I never was an academician. <clears throat> I never really was a critic asking questions. I was, you know, kind of a, uh, uh, an apprentice director or a pro who wanted to know more, uh, and that was, that was the, the basic reason for all the questions.
0: Bogdanovich and Platt both worked as actors in Summerstock Theatre New York, and Bogdanovich's performative sensibility comes through in the film's unorthodox trailer. It intersperses clips with behind-the-scenes footage of the cast and crew on the film set, and in many, Bogdanovich is shown guiding his actors through their shot. In one, Bogdanovich lays seductively on top of a grand piano as he serenades You Must Remember This to Ryan O'Neill. In character as howard it cuts to the shot from the film in which streisand does the same action it cuts again to a medium shot of o'neill and bogdanovich on the piano bench the director continues to serenade his actors before it cuts one final time to the exact same shot set up from the film with streisand taking bogdanovich's position the voiceover narrator says
2: a glimpse of two artists at work we are afforded an insight into how director peter bogdanovich working with stars barbara streisand and ryan o'neill can manage to put these two performers together and create that almost indefinable thing which is most simply described as a motion picture called what's up doc
0: the trailer narration is tongue-in-cheek but it's nonetheless evocative in the way it foregrounds Bogdanovich's directorial role and crucially his relationship with his actors he literally puts himself in their place right in the middle of the action orchestrating his character's romantic entanglements and the film's Daffy scenarios. Bogdanovich was an actor's director, and the camaraderie that he and Platt cultivated on their sets shines in the sparkling chemistry of their cast. What's Up Doc is a film where everyone is firing on all cylinders. It's really a perfect screwball comedy. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriaku. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye bye! <coughs>